Welcome back to the Sporting Max Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Beckon Maintenance, high pressure washing, facility maintenance, and commercial sanitization. Check them out at beckon.com.au. Here's your host, Max Becker. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sporting Max, where today we are joined by, in my opinion, one of the greatest NBL coaches of all time. And I couldn't think of anyone better than to bring up the 25th episode with than the great man, Joey Wright. Welcome to the podcast. Joey, how are you going? I'm doing extremely well, and thank you for having me on, Sports Max. Now, you were born in Alton, Illinois. What was that like to grow up as a kid in America, and what sports did you play growing up? Old Illinois is a very unique place. It's one of the places that um, uh, in American history is really fascinating. The, the original printing press for America was uh, thrown there on the river. Um, has a lot of history. You had the tallest man in the world, Robert Watlow, who was seven, what was he, seven, nine or some, seven, eight at the time. So one of the tallest men in the world. Um, but it was very cool growing up there because it was a basketball bed. I played basketball and football and baseball. I was better at baseball, second better at football, and basketball was my third best, but I loved it more, so I, I followed that dream. You played college ball for a bit at the Drake Bulldogs. What was that like to start off, um, yeah, the start of your professional basketball career? Well, the Drake was definitely um, a learning experience for me. I went there coming out of high school, you know, thought I'd be a hot shot and, and play really well and, and do well, and I didn't. I didn't. I had a lot of learning to go through, a lot of growing to do, and um, uh, the coach thought I wasn't that good, so I transferred to the University of Texas, um, and I played my last three years of collegiate basketball at the University of Texas. At the University of Texas, you were running the point for them for three years from 1988 through to 91. What was that entire, entire experience like of having to transfer schools, and what were some of your highlights at uh, the University of Texas? Um. Transferring was really tough at the time. Um, at the time, I just I felt horrible about myself. Um, I thought I was a failure. Um, I thought I left so much on the table, um, and I just I just felt horrible. But I wanted another shot at it, so I transferred to University of Texas. And the greatest coach I ever played for, Tom Penders, said gave me the ball and said, "Hey, son, you can play. I trust you." Um, and he let me get out there and play some really good basketball. And, you know, we went to the Elite Eight, we went to the Sweet 16, um, and we just played some really, really good basketball. And probably the highlight was beating Purdue um, to go to the Sweet 16 in, um, in um, my home state of Indiana. So Purdue didn't recruit me. They told me I wasn't good enough, and then I was able to come back and beat them on their home court in front of 45,000 people. So it was pretty good. <laughs> What was that like to play uh, in the Sweet 16? Uh, it was it was magical. Um, to have 45,000 people looking at you playing basketball in the state you grew up in, and I had, you know, I had 45,000. I probably had 2,000 relatives and fans there um, to support me, uh, and it was just, it was magical. It was one of the highlights, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what you do all the hard work for. You spent the spring of 91 at the uh, Chicago National Basketball Association tryout camp. What was your aim uh, coming into this tryout? I don't know how you know all this, but yes, I did. Um, my aim at that point in time was to prove to the NBA I could run the point guard and not just score the ball um, because I was a, a pretty good scorer. And, you know, that's what they saw me as. And 
I want to try to prove that I um, I could I could run the team and, and do pretty well. I actually got MVP, co-MVP of the, the NBA camp, that Chicago camp. In 1991, again, you entered the NBA draft. What was that whole draft process like for you and what uh, did you have to – um, you know, go through and what it what was the process like? It was uh, it was pretty nerve wracking initially because I hadn't been through it before. And I, um, the two guards that played with me, Travis Mays and Lance Blanks, they had went through it the year before, and they were trying to communicate to me how it was. And um, but it was pretty nerve wracking because I just didn't know what to expect, and you know, I didn't know if I was good enough, I didn't know whatever. But I just went in there and put my head down and just played my game. Um, and I had a pretty good camp and a pretty good process. And the day I got drafted, I thought I was going to go first round, um, and I ended up slipping the second round. But, you know, in, in retrospect, I probably was a second-round pick and not a first-round pick. You you just mentioned uh, being taken at that second round by Phoenix Suns at the 50th pick. What was your mindset like um, when you were taken in the second round when you thought um, at that time that you were going to be a first-round pick? Oh, it was devastating. Um, I didn't want to have a big to-do, so I had my girlfriend at the time, my roommate, and her parents. We just sat at the house and we watched it on TV. And, you know, I thought I was going to go 21 to San Antonio. Then I thought I was going to go 30th to somebody else, and then I slipped all the way down to 50. Um, So I was pretty disappointed on the day. Um, But I just made my mind up. I was going to just try to do the best I can. And, um, and make up for it. But, you know, it, it, you know, after it's all said and done, like I said, I probably was a second-round pick. The Suns released you before the beginning of the 91-92 NBA season. What was your perspective on this? Um, at the time, you know, I could definitely understand it. They were, they were buying for a championship. They were, they were trying to win a championship. They were trying to, um, um, you know, go all the way, and they wanted a, a – a, veteran backup guard, the combo guard, and they cut me for Trent Tucker, who had played in the league. Trent played in the league for about yeah. 12 years, um, and they cut me for him. So I was, you know, I could understand it. I understood basketball well enough to know that, I, you know, I wasn't good enough to be that backup point guard on the championship team. In the 1995 and 96 NBL seasons, you played for the Geelong Supercats. What was this like to come into the NBL um, and to play overseas in a foreign country? Um, I played in Europe a little bit in Asia before then. So coming to Australia was a blessing. Like I came here and everyone spoke English, obviously the food was, you know, better than in America. Um, and the people were just really courteous and really pleasant. So, um, coming to Australia was one of the best things that ever happened to me. What sort of cultural differences did you notice uh, between the United States and Australia? Um, we were definitely more passionate. Um, when it comes to basketball in America, we, we're more passionate. I think our competitive nature um, towards basketball is a little bit stronger. We're more aggressive. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I'm still trying to figure that out with Australia. But um, I know, I'm, you know, my passion towards sometimes gets confused with anger, and it's only passion. Midway through the 2002-2003 NBL season, you were appointed as the new head coach of the Brisbane Bullets. Back then, did you have a vision of what kind of coach you wanted to be or um, what kind of coach you you like were at that time? I didn't know what coach I was at that time. That was my first time being a head coach on a big stage. I'd coached two times before that, 
as a head coach, but it was on a high school level and on a, a CBA level. Um, this was the first time on a big stage. So I didn't know what kind of coach I was. I knew what kind of coach I wanted to be, um, which was a coach that cared about his players, a coach that played high up-tempo basketball, a coach that maxed his players out as far as, as, far as their talent levels. Um, and I knew it was going to be some things I had to compromise to be that guy. And uh, I think I got close to it over my career. What did you take out of your playing career that uh, you developed into your coaching philosophy? To let players play. I mean, one of the things my coach did for me was let me play. He let me figure it out on the court. He trusted my mistakes. And as much yelling as you've ever seen me do on the sideline, I've never yelled at someone for turning the ball over or missing a shot. Um, those are things that just, you know, going to happen. And as a player, I had coaches who yelled at me for turning the ball over and missing shots. It never made me not turn the ball over and never made me not miss a shot. So why do it? Um, but a coach telling me it's okay probably helped me make the next shot or not in, turn the ball over. Yep. In your 304 season, it was your first full season in the NBL as a head coach. The team had a 16 win improvement. What did this mean for the development of yourself, the team, and the club? It was uh, it was the start of our culture um, there at the Brisbane Bullets. Before then, uh, it wasn't a lot of great positive culture. It wasn't a, uh, a lot of great um, anything going on. They had finished last a couple years in a row, and I think this set us up for, you know, this is going to be our culture. We're going to be successful. We're going to win games. Uh, we're going to be good. And, you know, we were able to string out some pretty good seasons there at the Bullets. In your 6 7 season, you guys won the minor premiership, had a 21-game winning streak, and also the big one, the championship. What did this first um, NBL championship mean to you as a coach? Um, at the time, I was um, I was pretty, um, I guess, not in shock, but just you know, surprised that we got there um, so quick. We, we we kept trying to build that thing and build it and build it, and you know, we started developing culture and, and so forth. And um, even though it was five years in, it, it just felt great to get it. Like you know, it was a lot of press release bullets. Had one and one in twenty years, um, so it was you know, putting them back on the map a little bit and giving them a stage to play on. Uh, but it was, it was, it was a, yeah, it was a great feeling, really good feeling. Can you talk, take me through that uh, championship series or game? Yeah, the first, it's, it's amazing. We played the first game against Melbourne and they, they were smashing us by about 15 points in the first game at our place. And if they win that, you know, it's going to be really hard to go back and get them. So yeah. I called a timeout before then, and the first timeout I called, I noticed everybody was paying attention to me in the first timeout. No one was talking. No one was doing anything. So we went back out on the floor, and they, they ran over the top of us. I called my second timeout, and all I said to them is, I want us to be the team that we've been all year. And I said, CJ, you never look at me when doing the timeouts. You're usually getting uh, chewies in the back. I said, Sam, you're usually looking up in the stands. I said, Abby, you're usually telling me to get you the ball. I said, Dusty, you're looking, usually looking at me like you are now. And I just said, I want you to be yourself. And everybody started laughing. And we went out there and we ran over the top of them and we ended up beating them by about 15 points in the first game. Um, how, and, how, did, how did you come up with that sort of inspirational speech? Was that just kind of on the spot in the moment or – like a well, I know, 
I, I know it was definitely a, a, um, it wasn't premeditated. It was, it's one of those things that I know as a coach, as a player, that no one's going to play well until they get closer to their natural nature, who they are. Our biggest, when we're playing sport, or not, not just sport, when we're doing anything, when our best creative levels is when we feel comfortable. And if they didn't go back to feeling comfortable and being who they were, we were not, we were not going to ever get to our creative levels. And as soon as I got them back to the, who they were, you know, the next time out, CJ was laughing. He was like, where's, where's the lollies at? Where's the lollies? And, you know, Abby was talking about, all right, you said run a play for me, run a play for me. And we just got back to who we were. And we, you know, we, we rolled over and our creative levels came out. You joined the now fold of Gold Coast Blazers as their head coach in 2009. What potential or what did you see in this club that convinced you to sign with them? Well, I went to coach in the NBL again at that time. And the, um, you know, that was the only opportunity. It was the only job available. And they had finished last the year before and, and, and didn't have a great season. But I just saw it as a wonderful opportunity. You know, obviously, Gold Coast is a great place to live, so it would be easy to recruit players. Um, and that team that we had there, if we would have kept that team together, I think we would have been one of the better teams in NBL history. I believe you were still with the Blaze when they folded in 2012. What's that like to be part of an organization? of a basketball organization that unfortunately has to close? Well, I had two of them. I had one with Brisbane and then the second one with Gold Coast. Um, and it's tough. I mean, you, you, you're there one day and you're doing it. Um, you're doing it and you're working hard. And then all of a sudden they walk in and say, we're not going to have a team. You're trying to put together a program. Um, and it wasn't just tough for me. I, I probably felt more for our owners of the team because they had dumped a lot of money in. And they tried to do everything they could to make it work on the Gold Coast. And financially, we just couldn't make it work. The sponsors weren't coming through like we needed them to. And so we ended up having to fold. Um, but it was very disappointing because that team, we had Mark Worthington, Chris Goulding, Adam Gibson, uh, Anthony Petrie, Tom Garlap. Um, we had some really, really talented players on that team. What was that to like, uh, work with a young Chris Golding as we see him like now just – um, heard that he's in amazing form coming into NBL 21. He, um, he is, he's one of the most fascinating players I've ever met and, uh, and, and every coach. He, um, I found Chris from just playing pickup ball on the, at the court. He didn't come yeah. through any formal system. I just seen him playing pickup ball and thought he'd be a, a pretty good player. And he, um, he turned out to be a great player. He has one of the greatest minds for basketball of anybody I've been around. As of 2013, you were known as the new head coach of the Adelaide 36ers. Now, they were bottom of the ladder the season before you became coach. And then then you took them to the grand final the next season. What tactics or style did you think that you bring to the team that helped uh, the club and the guys strive to become better? I thought we had some exceptional talent um, there. Uh, I thought they needed to be let loose. I thought they needed to be uncaged and just say, go play basketball. Um, you know, Daniel Johnson was one of the best bigs in the league. We had Adam Gibson, one of the best point guards. We had Jason Kadee bagging him up. We had Anthony Petrie, one of the best power forwards in the league. And I just said to myself, we got some amazing talent here. There's no reason why we shouldn't be very good. And so we, um, you know, we, we kept working, 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 and then finally convinced them, hey, we can be a pretty good team. And they, they bought in and, and – um, yeah, we went one game from the grand final or the championship that year. 
By February 2017, you would have already won three Coach of the Year awards alongside Brian Gorge and Lindsay Gaze as the only people to win that award three times. What does that achievement and honour mean to you? Um, I think when I was coaching, not much. When I was coaching, I didn't think about it much. Um, that year we went to the grand final, I thought I probably should have won it a fourth time. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, taking a team from last place to the grand final, I didn't, I didn't win it, uh, which I thought was a very odd situation. But uh, it, it didn't mean much at the time. I think, you know, probably at the end of my coaching career, when I'm through, when I'm finished, that maybe, you know, it'll probably mean more. In March 2018, you unfortunately lost the NBL championship to Dean Vickerman's Melbourne United. Can you take me through the grand final series from your team's perspective? Look, we thought we played some really good basketball. We obviously know that Melbourne was loaded and extremely talented. Yeah. You know, they had a lot, lot, uh, a lot behind them. They had a lot of people behind them. And um, we played we played the first game. We thought we probably let one go the very first game down there. We yeah. were a bit nervous. Um, we let, you know, they were a bit nervous, I think, coming out as well. And then they got rolling and, and kind of ran over us. And then the next game, when we came back home, we were feeling good about ourselves. And we played a really good game and probably ran over them. And, and we felt we convinced ourselves after that second game we were the better team. And then we went down the third game. And I thought we played really well the third game. And I thought the turning point was probably when they, you know, threw Sobe out for a head butt that he never did. He actually got hit butt twice himself. Yeah. And uh, he was he was thrown out the game from other people here, but he was playing really well. He was he was running a team and he was he was playing great deal on Casper and we were up 12 or 13 points. And, you know, we were looking pretty good at halftime. And I thought if we won that game, it would have been a big difference. Um, but then losing Josh Childress to injury really changed the whole perspective. What's that like to have a lockdown defender to really capture and shut down Casper Ware like um, Sobe? Casper is a, a extremely talented player, extremely talented. He is he's one of the best guards that's ever played in this league. And that night Sobe had had his number. That night Sobe was was all over him. He he could stay in front of him. He was challenging his sock shot. He was changing him, uh, changing his direction. Um, and he did a really good job. But you know, losing Sobe definitely gave Casper a little bit a little bit more room. In February this year, yourself and the thirty sixes parted ways. How did this come about? Look, they, they just had a different way they want to go. I definitely felt like it was time for me to go. Um, I had a different value system than they had. They had a different way of wanting to do things. And that happens in sport. Um, but, you know, I definitely, definitely knew it was time to go. What values in a team are important to you? And then what also are your values as a coach? One of my pet peeves in life, which also carries on over into coaching, um, we have to know that sport is only a re reflection of society. So the things that really are important to me off the court are the same things important on the court. Yeah. And that's, you know, not being selfish. You have to be willing to share the spotlight if you're going to be, you know, on my team and want to be successful. Hard work. You got to go in and work hard every single opportunity. You can't pass up one opportunity to, to work hard. Study the game. You need to know what your opponent is thinking where they're going to go, what their tendencies are. You need to be able to do that. And then, you know, forgiveness. You know, we have to – I have to accept the lowest common denominator on my team and try to win a game with that with that being the case. So, 
those are the things that are important for me off the court. Same things are important on the court. I've spoken with Lee Jacker, who we've had recently had on the podcast and who you have coached. He said that you were a great coach who demanded the best out of each player. Have you noticed a change in coaching styles from, say, 10 years ago to now? Yeah, yeah, I have. Right now, um, coaches don't demand as much and players don't respond to a coach being demanding. Right now, players players have the power and players want to go out and, and shoot when they want to shoot and, and yeah. not necessarily listen and take direction as much. And no team, I don't care who it is, you got to listen to one person to get everybody on the same page. If everybody's listening to somebody different, you'll never get on the same page. And um, I, I think you look at all the championship teams in, in basketball or hockey or whatever it is, they got one person that they feed off of and they get their direction from, and that's typically the coach. Who do you, what do you think separates um, the good coaches in basketball from the great and elite coaches? Um, Woods has set a great value system, a great on-court um, game plan, and who cares about their players and, and don't waver from that. And they don't let anybody waver from that. They don't waver from that, even if it may cost them their job. What drills do you recommend for um, developing basketballs? Um, I have a um, I have a lot of different drills for shooting and passing and dribbling and whatever um, to develop skill sets. Um, go to coach um, the right coach, um, and you can see some of those drills on the, online or go to Transition Sports Adelaide, and some of, we have a lot of those online as well. And, uh, go to TransitionSportsAdelaide.com, um, www.TransitionSportsAdelaide.com, and we have a lot of drills online that you can look at for free. Are you hoping to continue your coaching in the NBL around the world? I mean, like, what's next for you? I want to go coach in the U.S. I want to coach a collegiate team or, or a um, – uh, on the NBA and the NBA program, G League or, or NBA, whatever it is. Um, I think my NBL days are over. Um, I'm not really interested in coaching the NBL at this point. Um, I'm ready to move on and, and, and go for another challenge. Who are some coaches who you formed a relationship or friendship with over the years who you know well? Um, most of the guys that coached during my era, we all got along really well. So the Adam Ferns, uh, Aaron Ferns, um, you know, Gordy McLeod, uh, Rob Beveridge. I still talk to Rob, you know, every yeah. every month or so. Um, those guys are, are, you know, really – I really respect Brian Gorgian. I learned a lot from watching yeah. Brian um, and, you know, really respect what he does out there on the court. Um, and I think that those guys I named were some of the better coaches. Um, Guy Malloy is another one that's – a a real big, you know, I think he's coach, coaching the women boomers team now, but he's he's an exceptional coach and, and really learned a lot from Guy as well. Um, so it's, it's it's some guys out there that I, I learned a lot from from my beginning coaching here in 2002. What would be your greatest advice to anyone attempting to become a great coach like yourself? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> uh, it you be willing – if you're going to coach, you got to be willing to give it all. Um, you're going to sacrifice um, your family relationships. You're going to sacrifice your friend relationships. Um, you learn to live a bipolar life. Um, you're happy when you win. You're sad when you lose. 
Um, understand that it's a bunch of giving, 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 and don't pretty don't expect a lot back initially. Uh, most players will disappoint you when they're younger, but by the time they get older, you know they'll look back and go, "Hey, coach, you really helped me out," and they'll give you that. But um, don't expect a lot when you're younger. Thanks, Joey, for being a part of the Sporting Max podcast and uh, coming on the show. It's been an absolute privilege to have you um, come on and share your stories and, you know, what your career has been all about and your time in the NBL. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I don't know how old you are, but you want you ask some of the most informed questions in 20 years of coaching. So you're on your right track. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm, uh, I'm 13, so... Uh, you're doing excellent, man. All right. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Joey. Thank Stay you. tuned, everyone, for some more Sporting Max. Thanks for listening to Sporting Max. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes and follow and subscribe to our channel on Instagram and YouTube.